You're listening to the Christian Single Moms Podcast. Hey, it's Michelle. Welcome back to the Christian Single Moms Podcast. When we've experienced major life disruptions like divorce or abuse or moves, those kinds of things, I know certainly they cause adults a lot of issues, but in this episode, we're going to be focusing on how these things that many of us have gone through are impacting our kids and how it shows up in their behavior and really what's going on in the mind of a child who's just trying to get through some really adult type situations. Today's guest is Christina Chismar from Focus on the Family, and I'm so excited for this discussion because I know a lot of times it's easy to just get into these reactionary cycles of our kids reacting and we're reacting and Oftentimes we just walk away from this going, this is not the way this is supposed to be, that it makes me often look at my situation and go, this is so hard. How am I going to get through this? And Christina has such an incredible way of being able to describe what's actually going on in our child's mind and help us as moms to be able to see it and how to respond correctly, how to parent a child who's dealing with big emotional issues in a way that helps them to experience real healing. In our conversation, we actually talk about a lot of things that she sees in her practice as a trauma specialist, but she does it in such a way that it's not overly confusing and there's not lots of big jargon and words and stuff like that, just really basic principles so that we can know the best ways to move forward with our kids. The Bible talks about each of us as being mind, body, and spirit. And a lot of times on the Christian Single Moms podcast, we do address issues from a spiritual perspective. However, there's also great resource, I find, in being able to look at these things from a mind standpoint and a physical standpoint, understanding the way our brain works and being able to treat it in that way. You know, so for example, if we had a broken arm, we certainly would pray for a person with a broken arm for healing for them, but we'd also make sure that we got them to the doctor and had them set in a cast and those types of things. And so this is kind of that similar way where, yeah, we're, we're doing spiritual disciplines and leading our kids in that way, but it's also great to understand what's going on in that brain and working with it in a way that helps to bring our kids to kind of a, a 360 degree way of looking at their healing. As we dive into the conversation today, I want to stop and take a second to mention our sponsor, Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling has been such a help for me in understanding myself better and then being able to help my kids. I have video sessions with Judy once a week and it works right through an app. I can schedule a meeting with her or I can chat back and forth with her whenever it's convenient for me. And she's able to offer spiritual guidance in our sessions as well. If you'd like to see if Faithful Counseling would be a good fit for you, you can go to getfaithful.com slash single mom. And then while you're there, you can actually get 10% off of your first month. So make sure you have a look at Faithful Counseling. So before I jump into my conversation with Christina Chismar, I'd like to tell you a little bit about her. She is a trauma specialist, and what that means basically is that she works to help her clients feel safe and educate them about how trauma has affected their brain and their body. She practices from a mind, body, and spirit approach. She's a licensed clinical social worker, and she has worked in the field since 1999. Fun thing about her also is that she is a licensed cosmetologist and professional therapeutic clown. So she uses clown therapy with her clients. She's also versed in things like equine-assisted psychotherapy and play therapy, as well as a variety of other modalities. She has a private practice in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and she's also on staff with Focus on the Family. In my conversation with Christina, I came to really understand that 
our kids can experience trauma from a very early age, even before they're born. And it's something that when we recognize the trauma that our kids have gone through, that we can also be much better moms and better parents to them and give them the kind of encouragement that they need. I've already been able to put into practice some of the things that she shares here, and I just know that it's going to be such a great tool for you. So with that, enjoy my conversation with Christina Chismar. Christina, thank you so much for joining me in this discussion. I talked to so many women and myself included, that we know that our kids have been through a lot of life disruptions, whether that's divorce or abuse, significant moves, those types of things. And I know that many of us have experiences where that changes the way that our kids relate to us and connect with us. So I'd like to know if at the start, you can give us just a brief overview of understanding attachment and how our kids attach to us and how we might be able to identify issues in a child's behavior. Absolutely. Because it's so important, you know, we're trying to figure this out. And and I think the important place to start is that parents need to understand that bonding and attachment are two different things. So you can have a child that's completely bonded to you that likes you or misses you when you're gone. And you can still have an attachment issue of a child who says, I don't trust you. And so as we start to talk about attachment, we need to look at how attachment is formed. And that really happens um, when a baby comes out of the tummy. And let's say that baby's hungry, baby has a need, baby expresses that need by crying. And in a healthy environment, mom comes and meets that need enough so that baby feels safe and satisfied. And by doing so, then baby starts to trust mom. And they go through that cycle thousands and thousands of times in order to be able then for the baby to feel safe and satisfied and trust mom. And so when we look at attachment issues or if there's an attachment um, break, it's usually in that cycle. Either the baby didn't feel safe or um, something prevented baby from getting enough of what it thinks it needed. Can you give us some examples when you talk about that baby may not have felt safe? Can you give us some examples of things that are risk factors for those attachment breaks? Absolutely. So the most common one that we think of is when a baby is adopted. Um, So baby knows the difference between birth mom and adoptive mom. So even if you catch that baby out of the canal from adoption, um, the baby still knows the difference and that attachment break can cause um, the brain to take out of that cycle. Um, But some of the other more common ones are anything to do with abuse or neglect issues. Um, One that doesn't usually get as much acknowledgement but is pretty important is how mom's internal state was while she was pregnant. So if mom was anxious or going through some trauma or tragedy while she was pregnant with the baby, the baby experienced that and, and didn't know how to interpret that. So sometimes that attachment break can happen even before birth, um, depending on the anxiety level or the trauma with the mom. Some of the other more common ones that we see are if there's been a medical trauma, like if you had a difficult birth, a C-section, and the baby ended up in the NICU for any period of time. You know, there's some babies that will recover from that, and there's some babies who will not recover from that. So we really start to look for some of those um, traumatic events. Um, if obviously, if if you had a divorce, or if your family moved, or if something happened within the first three years of life, you know that's really where 
we start to look for those risk factors. Wow. So I'm, this is blowing my mind because what you're saying even is that some of these things, these traumas are things like you said with the NICU, a difficult birth or stress during pregnancy. These are things that we can't necessarily change or affect in maybe a way that we would like to, to prevent something like this happening. Absolutely. And I tell my, my parents that I work with all the time, you can, you are a great parent. You can have a great parent and a great child and still have this disconnect that's outside of your control. Can you help us understand the difference between if that disconnect happens before age three or after age three? Because I know you, you made an illusion there that, that there's a difference. Yes, there's a significant difference. And and so when we talk about um, if there's a disconnect to the attachment cycle before the age of three, then the baby essentially doesn't learn safety. Um, their brain doesn't learn the difference between not safe and safe versus if the attachment break or if the trauma happens after the age of three, then we've had enough of those first three years that baby learned how to be safe because that attachment was met those first three years. So when the trauma happens after the age of three, then the baby has the awareness of the difference between safe and not safe. But what happens is there ends up being a a trauma wall there that blocks them from accessing it. So both children's behaviors may look the same, but it's very, very different. It's kind of like if you have a child that's grown up in the world in the war zone, so they know how to survive bombs and being shot out and things like that. Okay. And, but if you have a child who has grown up in civilian world and enters into the war zone after the age of three, then at least they know the difference between civilian world and war zone. They, they know the difference, even if they're scared and they're living in the war zone and they can't get out of that, they at least know the difference versus the child who um, grows up without the awareness of civilian world at all. They have no awareness of it. So you take that child out of the war zone and go, you, you're safe. You don't have to stop fighting. But to them, that's scarier than the war zone. Cause at least in the war zone, I knew how to survive. Now you've brought me to some unknown place that scares the living daylights out of me. And I think I'm going to die. So it's reversed then that if it's after three, they understand safe is normal and war zone is threatening versus a child who thinks that the war zone is normal and the safe zone is threatening. Correct. Can you help us then to understand sort of the role of the brain in this then in, in identifying threats and safety and that kind of thing? And what are kind of typical reactions and reactivity? I know a lot of us see our kids maybe having these knee-jerk reactions or really severe reactions to stress that maybe to us seem like there's obviously a problem here, but we don't know what we're dealing with or how to handle it. Yeah, absolutely. And and when you're talking about reactive brain, um, I generally help p- parents start to understand the difference between your upstairs brain and your downstairs brain, because every single brain, unless you're severely damaged, everybody has one. And so the more that we can understand it and the more then we can notice how far down the continuum of reactivity that you are, because that continuum can be, you know, mild or it can be really, really severe. But the more that you can recognize it, then the more you um, have the tools to be able to interact with it and heal it. So let me really quickly, if you'll allow me to, I'd like to explain the upstairs and downstairs brain. 
Oh, sure. That'd be great. Yes. <laughs> um, so in your upstairs brain is by your forehead. This is your um, frontal cortex where you can have control. It is where you can think and learn and rationalize um, and respond normally. And most importantly, you can use your words to communicate your thoughts and feelings. So if I ask you, what do you need? You're going to give me an answer. I need this, 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 and this. And it can be a completely emotional response, but I'm still able to use my words. Okay. So we have control in our upstairs brain. Opposite of that in our downstairs brain, that is our survival reflex brain. It's back behind your ears, it's by your brain stem, and that's your reactive brain. And that brain is geared towards safety. It's, it's, it's a reflex. You don't have control over when it's activated. You don't have a control over necessarily what happens, even though you're, you're in control and you're responsible for it. It's kind of like when you're, when the doctor hits your knee with a hammer and your leg kicks out, you can hold your leg as tight as you want to. But when the hammer comes, you're going to kick the doctor because it's a reflex. It's outside of your control. Okay, so parents need to first off understand the downstairs brain, their children aren't choosing it. It's a reflex response that your brain goes, oh, not safe. I need to say I need to save you. I need to keep you safe. And it's going to do that in one of uh, four ways. And it's important that you know what all four of these look like in your child, um, because if any one of these are present, it means that your child is not. Because they're not in control of their downstairs brain. They're in survival automatic pilot trying to survive. So it sounds like that downstairs brain is when we think of being triggered, there's some kind of event or something that causes that brain to react and take over in one of these four ways, as you mentioned. Is that right? Yes. Um, So it can be any kind of trigger. um, And this is where... Um, at some point, we can talk about sensory processing um, in in how some of these things overstimulate our, our body and our brain. But when our brains get triggered, it's automatically going to go into one of those four modes, fight, flight, freeze, and faint. I'm going to take a quick break here to mention a new resource at agapemoms.com called The Seven Loneliness Traps. As moms, we often don't necessarily parent the way that we want to because we're dealing with our own stuff. We're dealing with our own trauma and healing and oftentimes feelings of loneliness. The Seven Loneliness Traps is a free guide where you're able to identify seven common problems that keep you feeling lonely and maybe kind of reactive yourself and offer some insights on how to get out of those traps. You can download your free guide today by going to agapemoms.com slash free. So I know I have heard of fight and flight before, and I think I've actually heard of freeze, but I didn't realize that there were four. Can you help us to identify all four of those and what they might look like in our child? Yes, because it's really important to understand if any of these are present, it means your child is not. Um, So let me go through those. So in fight mode, that can be a physical fight in that you're punching, kicking, hitting, spitting, biting, pinching, whatever. It can look like a verbal fight where I'm being disrespectful and snotty, yelling, screaming, and being demanding. It can also look like a passive aggressive manipulative fight. This is where you're going to see a child who is doing lying or stealing behaviors because they're manipulating you and trying to survive. Okay, so if any of those are present, your child is in fight mode. In flight mode, we're going to see a child who physically runs out of the room, 
Um, the child may even run out of the building. These are your kids who kind of run away and hide under things um, or just disappear physically. You can also have um, somebody who mentally checks out. These are generally your daydreamers out the window or your people who go into fantasy worlds, whether it's I'm um, addicted to reading books because I have to be in my fantasy world all the time, or I'm playing my video games all the time. Um, Just as a side note, as adults, all of your addictive behaviors, um, so whether it's video games, drugs, alcohol, porn, sex, all of that, you know, falls under the flight part of the of the brain, and the brain just almost disassociates to a different place. Mm-hmm. So, if any of those behaviors are present, that's when you're going to see a child who is in flight mode. Um, freeze mode is not as commonly known, but it's very very important. Um, so, freeze mode. You can have literally be frozen in that you're not responding verbally. You're not responding physically. We see this a lot with sexual abuse victims who don't fight back because they're just trying to survive. Sometimes with kids, I'll call it playing possum. Um, You're just not getting this response. You're still in there, but nobody's responding. Mm -hmm. But most commonly what I see in freeze mode is what I call camouflage mode. And these are very high-performing people. Um, Usually, they're the best of the best. They're doing exactly what's expected of them. The straight-A students, successful sports people, popular people, they're doing exactly what's expected of them to the best of their ability, but they're in camouflage mode. So they don't handle change at all. So whether they don't meet that expectation that they've set or somebody changes that expectation, they're going to have one of two reactions generally. The first one, they'll pop right back into fight mode and have a huge anger response that's way over the top for the situation. Or they tend to have a panic attack meltdown. This is where all of your anxiety disorders live, like um, perfectionism, panic disorder, OCD behaviors. So if any of those are present, you're looking at a child who is in freeze mode. And most of the time, you won't know your child's in freeze mode until you ask them a question, something like, hey, can you pick up your your shoes and take them to your room? And you get this huge response. (gasps) And you're like, dude, I just asked you to pick up your shoes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's what I call poking the bear is you won't know your child's in freeze mode until they explode on you. And then you'll go, oh, you were in freeze mode. Okay. Mm So it looks like they're in this performance mode and that everything is plugging along yeah. normally, but then something disrupts that, some kind of change disrupts that, and then you see them. That's right. So it's a, a oh, well, they're such a great, great child. They're doing such a great job. I don't understand why, mm-hmm. you know, this happened or why they can't handle this. Um, mm-hmm. So, Wow. Okay. Yeah. Can and, you also describe faint? Yeah. So faint um, is pretty self-explanatory. It literally is your brain gets so overwhelmed that your body faints. Now, um, sometimes the, the body will do this, but be asleep. So you'll be in the middle of a conversation and your child will just fall asleep and, and then come back pretty quickly and go, what? And you'll be like, I just told you, you pick up your shoes. You know, um, sometimes we, we can see in children that have been very traumatized or severely traumatized, there's almost some seizure activity that can come in if, if a, a child is in um, faint mode. Usually, the when you look at the downstairs brain, usually people are going to have a preference either in fight or flight when they're stressed out or when there's been trauma. 
They go into either freeze or faint when they think they're going to die at some point. Hmm. And so if you have a child that is either gone through a trauma at which point they thought they were going to die, they may be stuck in freeze or faint mode, um, or they may be cycling through all of them. But generally, the, those are kind of the parameters that, you know, we're, we're quickest to go to fight or flight. But if we think we're going to die, we're going to go further down. I see. So they're the more severe reactions in that case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, can you talk about, we talked a little bit about triggers. Can we talk about how once our child is triggered and we're seeing these kinds of reactive patterns and that sort of thing, how we can help them get out of that downstairs brain and into a place where they are more present and aware and less reactive. Absolutely. And this is where we start to to get into therapeutic parenting and and where we talk about that the only way that your brain gets information is through your senses. And um, right now, I think we're up to seven senses, if I'm correct. Um, touch, taste, sound, sight, smell, pressure, and balance are, are the ones that are most commonly dealt with. But if you understand that that's the only way that your brain gets information to perceive safety, and, and that safety is a perception, it's not related to physical safety, it's your brain perceives you to be safe. And the only way that it perceives you to be safe is by what's coming into your brain through your your five senses or seven senses. So when we start looking at those seven senses and how the brain is interpreting those, we all have sensory preferences, okay? And those sensory preferences fall in the category of either sensory seeking, which means I want that sensory, like, for instance, I like music playing on in the background, or I like hot and spicy foods. Um, or I like bright lights in my environment, or my brain might have a preference of sensory avoidance, which means I don't want music playing on in my background, I don't like spicy foods, or I don't want a lot of light in my environment, okay? So everybody has those preferences, um, and each category is is judged individually. So you can be sensory seeking in the area of, let's say, hearing, so you like playing music, but you're sensory avoidant in the area of taste. So you don't like spicy foods. You know, you can be, each category is individually judged. And then what happens when we start to talk about reactivity and the downstairs brain is that if you're in your upstairs brain and those preferences aren't met, you can tolerate it. You can be like, oh, that's annoying, but okay, whatever, I'll do my own thing. But if you're triggered and you're in your downstairs brain, those normal sensory preferences get elevated to a requirement for functioning, which means I can't function if the music is playing or I, I can't handle the smells of dinner um, being made because I, I can't now, I can't function at all. And so when we start look, noticing when the when the downstairs brain is being triggered and when it's in control, it's really important to look at what's happening in the environment around these seven senses in order to be able to say, is there something that's triggering the downstairs brain that's causing this child to not be able to function at all because of a sensory issue? So it sounds like we have the ability to help our children purely, well, I shouldn't say purely, but in a sense by managing some of those preferences 
so that they're able to better manage their stress and their triggers and that kind of thing and and get them to a place where they do feel safe. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. You know, so in some cases, um, sunglasses, nose plugs, or um, earbuds, or noise canceling headphones can be a game changer in somebody's ability to function. So how can we understand our children's sensory preferences and then how we can help them to calm down and to feel safe? Yeah, absolutely. So I teach um, kids to think about their brains and their bodies like a car engine. So if you think about a car engine, sometimes we might be driving too fast and feel out of control and be risk at crashing. Um, and usually I'll ask kids, what does that look like? And they're like, ah, right. Or our cars might be going too slow and puttering and maybe like going turtle speed where we're just getting run over by people. Um, we like it when our car is going just the right speed for the speed limit, because then it feels good. We're going with traffic and everything's working and everything's great. So our bodies work in the same way and our sensory preferences can help us to be able to maintain control over the speed that our engine is in at any given time. So when we look at our sensory preferences, not in just am I sensory seeking or sensory avoidant, but I want to also notice what sensory items speed my engine up versus slow my engine down. So for instance, I might notice that eating a Sour Patch Kids or Pop Rocks speeds my engine up. And makes my brain go woohoo, right? And I might notice that things like chewing gum or pretzels or popcorn might slow my engine down um, to be able to to gain some slowness or some comfort, right? Um, so when we start evaluating, like in this case, the area of taste, um, we want things in all three categories. So we want to know what are the foods that my sensory um, needs get met and slows my engine down, what speeds my engine up and what keeps me just right. Okay. Because then I can now start having control over my engine. So if I wake up on the wrong side of the bed and my engine is going way too slow, I might choose a snack from my too fast category that can pull me up into just right. And vice versa, if I am just really excited and um, my brain's just going too fast and I'm, I'm starting to feel like I'm out of control, then I might grab something from my too slow category to pull me down into just right so that I can find this happy balance of living in this just right category. And the thing about the seven senses is you can do that with all seven of them. To be able to find what speeds your engine up, what slows your engine down, and what keeps you just right in all of the seven senses. So then it sounds like, you know, me as a mom identifying my children's behavior, if I'm looking at them and saying, okay, it looks like they're in a low state or they're in a high state, that you could do things even like select different types of music to play in the house, or if they are in a a state where I can tell that they're very stressed, that it could even be that you can talk about things like pressure and touch that it may be that they need a hug or maybe that they don't want to be touched and that kind of thing. Is that kind of on the right track? It is. Absolutely. So when we start to notice our kids' um, sensory processing preferences, then when we identify, oh, you're in your downstairs brain, let me look around and see how many of these can I meet. So you may at that point be able to interact with your child 
But the thing about the downstairs brain is it has lots and lots of emotion, but no words. So if you try and interact with your child with words at that point, it's a waste of air because the answer you will hear is, I don't know. And, and so if we can then start to change some of their preferences and say, okay, I'm going to turn down, I, I automatically turn down the lights. I might spray some air freshener, or I might put some lotion, smelly lotion on myself that I know calms them down. Um, so I can't put it on my child, but I can put it on myself and then stand in the doorway um, and let the air permeate. Right. Um, I can offer them, you know, one of their snacks to see if I can get that downstairs brain to trigger into a place of safety so that they can now get into their upstairs brain and use their words to communicate. This conversation with Christina was so insightful. I tend to think of my kids' behaviors oftentimes as reactions towards me, and I love the way that Christina helps to understand that they're just responding out of a fear and a lack of safety that may have come from things that are triggering them and that when I take some of that personal side out of it, that I can be such a better mom to them. This conversation got so detailed that I'm actually gonna continue in part two with talking a little bit more specifically about techniques in what's called therapeutic parenting and how we can actually take steps to help our kids out of some of these trauma responses and bring them into a place where they're really able to understand what's going on and we can work with them. If you heard something in this episode today that kind of sparked a question in you, if you had some feedback for me, I'd love to hear it. You can reach me at the contact form at agapemoms.com or you can go to Facebook, Instagram, at agapemoms. I'm so thankful that you are able to join me and I look forward to having you with me next time.